How are you this morning? Doing pretty good? How are you this morning? Good. Hey, do a stretch a little bit. Stretch a little bit. Because I think spring break tires us all out. Stretch. Oh, circle your arms. That really feels good. Try, Bob, try that. Circle your arms. There you go. Now you're ready to open your Bibles. Take your Bibles and open up the Luke chapter 3. Before I received a degree from seminary, my first degree was I received a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. My major was marketing, a minor in communications. And if there's one thing I learned in business, in order to be successful, you must remain viable year after year after year. And by viable, it means you need to have a pattern of growth. The magic number, business experts say, is about 5 to 8% profit growth. Purposes of brings investors in, you can build capital to invest in better equipment, better product, make better product. But if this is true, the growth of 5 to 8.5%, and we were to use those same numbers as a church, for the last couple of years, business-wise, we'd be in trouble. We haven't been growing at 5 to 8.5%. In fact, we've plateaued a little bit as a church. And even have seen some small shrinkage in our numbers. As a pastor of this church and as a marketing graduate, I want to always try to figure out how do we grow? How do we grow sales? How do we write the ship? How do we bring in the crowd? That's what we need, a bigger crowd. How do we do that? Well, there's books out there like how to grow a church from 500 to 1,000 or even from 1,000 to 2,000. And a lot of the things they offer are the same. Change the music. Preach more seeker-sensitive messages. And they even advise you to get a new haircut, cut your hair. That, I like the, John, you know, the Tom Cruise look. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to change it. I'm stuck in the 80s and 90s. But few of these books, if any of these books, rarely ever talk about the greatest man who ever preached and how he gathered the crowds. I don't know why they don't go to him for their advice. I think it's because he was very strange. He was one mighty, strange man. And that person I'm talking about, of course, is the person Jesus said is the greatest man who ever walked the earth besides himself, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a study on strange. So if you follow along with me, we're going to read Luke 3, 1 through 19. A study on strange. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. He was son of Zacharias in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's where we're going to stop. The opening of this passage gives us a historical context. Actually, it starts with all of the big guns at that time. Roman Caesar, he starts from the top down, and then you have his underlings, and then it goes to the leaders of the Jewish community, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. Humanly speaking, they were the major players of that day. They were the big dogs. But when you talk about impact on the world, on the world stage, they couldn't compare to John. They couldn't compare to him. John was, the best way to put it, God's wild card. He brought him out right at the right time to prepare people's hearts for his son's coming. John was the man. As one gospel writer talks about John, listen to what it says here. This is in the book of John. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. When God wants to wake people up, he sends people, unique people, different people, spirit-led people to change the world. And there was nobody like John. John was God's man. As Luke writes in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, he was a voice. He was a voice calling in the wilderness. A solitary man preaching alone in a lonely place. And boy, was he ever strange. This is God's choice. God has strange choices. I mean, if you really evaluate the guy that God sent, he would be the last guy I would send. He'd be the last guy any of these books would send. Ever since his miraculous birth, where his mom was old and his dad was rendered speechless, his strangeness caused people to wonder. Actually, in Luke chapter 1, verse 66, after they named him John, the people said, I wonder, what is this child going to be? There was an interest about him because I think he was so weird. He was strange. As he grew up into adult, he moved way out of the main city of Jerusalem. He was a wild man. It's crazy. He dressed funny. His clothes were made of camel's hair. Not your nice Burlington Coat Factory camel's hair. This is a different kind of camel's hair. The kind that it didn't fit too well. wasn't tailored too nice. Had a belt around his waist and pulled it. He came in the style of the Old Testament preachers. So he dressed funny. He ate funny. He was the first paleo dietitian. He ate the real stuff of the earth. Locusts and wild honey. Good meal right there for you. Actually, I was talking to somebody that sold honey, and he said, honey, you could live off of 
pure honey for a whole year, and you get all the proteins and nutrients you need. I'm not sure I believe that, but it sounds pretty intriguing. John did. And he preached in a funny place. I mean, seriously. He preached in the desert of Judea, down by the Jordan River, which was about 800 feet below sea level. One old writer says when he went to visit it, you could say and describe this place as hot, inhabitable, and a deep depression. Kind of reminds me when I first started preaching over at the old church. It was hot in August. Kind of inhabitable, and I was always depressed preaching. It was, I understand what John lived in. And he had a very, a very strange introduction. Look at verse 7. So John is getting ready to wow the crowd, to garner attention, get people on his side, ready to listen to his message. In verse 7 he says, you guys are a bunch of snakes. What'd you come, what'd you come out here for? Because God's going to tear you up. Now, if I would advise John on this message, John, don't start out. I, I wouldn't use that as my introduction. It, it's not too compelling. It doesn't draw me in. I was thinking about it. If I tried dressing like John, eating like John, bringing us back to the old church to have church and turn up the heat, and then calling all of you a bunch of snakes... I don't know if I'd have my job for too long. I really don't. This is not how you do it. And this is not what the current church growth books say. This should not work. But it did. Look at the strange response in verse 7. Verse 7, it said, John said to the crowds coming out to him. Verse 3 says, he was in in all the country around Jordan. And then in Mark, if you read the book of Mark, it says all the Judean countryside and people from Jerusalem came out to see him. Not only did he go up and down the Judean countryside, but he, people streamed to this man. Thousands of people. Maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people going to the desert to hear a man in camel's hair who's chewing on a couple grasshoppers in his hand. Strange to me. That's strange. I would not run church like that. Hey, honey, let's, let's go out and hear John. No, no way. He's, he's out in the desert, and all I heard is that he yells at people. Ah, it can't be that bad. Well, do they have a band? Do they have a sound system and a coffee bar? Do they have cushy seats? If they have cushy seats, I'll come out. No, they don't, but for some reason, all the neighbors are going out to listen to him. I want to go. So why did they come? Why would anybody go out in the desert to listen to a man? I think it's the same reason innately people come to church, even though they don't realize it. They're seeking two things, and John had them. We could try to reinvent church. We could innovate, sing new songs, develop new programs, even experiment with new doctrines as a lot of younger, cooler, hipper pastors are doing where they're trying to twist doctrine a little bit here to get more people to listen. Timothy calls it tickling ears. But that's not why they came to John. He definitely wasn't tickling ears. Why did they come? I think the first reason is because they knew John was a prophet. They knew it. 
A prophet was a guy that was given God's word. Look at verse 2. You have all of these great guys like Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Asinius, Anna, Caiaphas. But it said the word of the Lord, it didn't go to them, it came to John. He had the word of the Lord. That's why they came out. There's a very interesting dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were asking Jesus all these questions, and Jesus answered them well. But he didn't let them off the hook. He said, all right, I got a question for you. Tell me. John's baptism, John's message, who gave him the authority? And man, they're like, Jesus said, did God give it or the people? And the Pharisees said, well, man, we know people viewed John as a prophet. And when they said that, what they meant is they knew that John's words were heavy. They had weight. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, Jeremiah, I'm going to send you my word. So he sent Jeremiah his word. And he said, Jeremiah, what did you see? He said, well, I saw this and I saw that. I saw an almond tree. I saw this. And God said, that's good because I just wanted to see if you clearly proclaim my word. Because if you do, Jeremiah, if you do, you will stand and nobody will be able to stand against you because of his word. His word's power. And when it's spoken, people know it. That's why they went out to go see John. I'll tell you what, for me, this is a daunting task. I need to be sure about two things as I deliver the word of God. The first thing is, am I being accurate to the original intent of the writer? Am I, am I communicating what I think the Bible wants us to receive? Or am I just going off the cuff, preaching what I want to preach? Second thing is, do I really believe this book will change your life? On the, and the first one requires, to, to properly preach it, it requires hard work. It's called proper hermeneutics, where God tells all preachers, he tells all teachers, he tells all leaders that you need to rightly divide the word of truth. Don't play games with this book. There's so many people playing games with this book, twisting it. Like Plato, forming it into what they want it to be. But James says, be very careful. You'll be judged strictly if you do that. Don't play with this book. The second thing, do I really believe God will change people's lives? It requires faith. The question is, and this is strange. This is to me the strangest thing about preaching. And I have to ask this myself all the time. Do I really believe that God will use my voice? Because I'll tell you what. If he didn't, I'd get tired of coming here to listen to me. Have you ever listened to yourself on, on tape? Or I, I'll go online and listen to myself. Like, who, why would anybody come and listen to that rotten guy? He's always stumbling in his words. He's kind of monotone, and he's, but he does look like Tom Cruise. That's one thing. That's just to wake some of you up, to keep you engaged, bring you back in. Do I really believe that God can and will use my voice? 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Him. I believe the Holy Spirit pierces your heart with His Word. I believe the Holy Spirit raises the dead through His Word. I believe through the Word, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes up to see the beauty of His Son. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, actually 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they will not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Scriptures do the exact opposite. They help us see the glory of God and the beauty of Christ. And I believe the more we preach this book, the more you will fall in love with Jesus. I believe that. That's why we do this. We really don't do it to just garner a bigger crowd and have a bigger market share. We do it because we believe Jesus is the Son of God and He's your only answer. If we do these two things, not just now, but as long as we have a witness here in this community, we preach the Word and we preach it with conviction. I believe people will come and trust God for that. I think the second reason they came to see John is is listen to verse 3. He was preaching something. Here's his message. It says, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for, this is the purpose, for, this is what he's offering, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness means God no longer holds you accountable or guilty. If you're honest, I mean really honest, you know you fail. It's funny when Jared had us read Psalm 30 or 51, and it talks about blot out my transgressions, and it talks about only against you, God, have I sinned, you and you alone. And then he said, take some time, 30 seconds to think about it. I know, for me, there's a flood of things I know I fail at every day. Such a failure. And I know I stand before a holy God. I know that. I think one of the worst feelings in the world is carrying this guilt, knowing that I can't meet His holy standard. And, and there are people all over the place walking in silent desperation, longing to be clean. But they don't feel clean. Remember I went to Czechoslovakia to give my testimony, talking about how Jesus came to die for you, and this Czech girl who could speak a little bit of English said, no, 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 he, he did not die for me. I said, why don't you think he died for you? He goes, you don't know what I've done with my life. You don't know the drugs or the sex or just the things I have said. Forgiveness says it's paid for. It's paid for. Walking in guilt can ruin you. It's really why I don't like to go to the dentist, I'll be honest with you. Finally went to the dentist. It's hard for me to go to the dentist. I don't like opening my mouth and the dentist going, oh, I used to have, I, if you ever read my blog, I used to have a dentist that would swear. My dad's best friend was my dentist. He'd, I'd open my mouth, he'd say every curse word in the world. Oh, I felt so guilty. But I got to eat sugar and it 
and I got soft teeth, and I don't want to open my mouth because they're rotten. And then I found this new dentist that said this. I've seen people with cavities all the time. That's why I'm here, and we'll take care of you. God knows you sin. He knows it. That's why Jesus came to offer you forgiveness. So John comes and he says, God is now ready to come and offer you forgiveness. Look at Psalm 130, verse 4. This is a beautiful psalm. So it's, there's a, in the psalms, there are these little teeny hidden jewels that just pop out of doctrine. In Psalm 130, verse 4, it's says this. Was that you sneezing, Gala? Bless you. See, you are forgiven for interrupting my sermon. God has that for you. Look at Psalm 130, verse 4. It says, very simple little verse, it says, with you there is forgiveness, God. With you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. ESV says, because you forgive, you alone are to be feared. The idea is, because God offers forgiveness, I am drawn to him. It brings me in. It invites me. It offers me hope. But if God could only condemn me, why come to him? If God will not forgive you, why do you even want him in your life? All he's going to do is pound you. I would simply be resigned to my damnation. So why care? But I know that with God there's hope. Some of you might feel like you are utterly condemned. There is no way out of it. But with this God, there's forgiveness. That's why we fear Him. That's why we love Him. That's why we run to Him. Because there's always hope with Him. Always. That's overwhelming to me. He can always change your situation. So people came. We go back to Luke. They came. Came to John. But as they came to John, he gave them a very difficult demand, a strange demand, a word we don't use too often. And I read it just right before in verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance. The demand he has is to repent. Repent means the easiest way to think about it is I am going this way. I am going this way. And repent is when my mind wakes up to the realization I'm going the wrong way and I turn around. That's what repentance is. So if you're driving down the street and this is your exit and you pass your exit and, oh, I missed my exit. I have to get off and turn around. When I get off on that overpass and turn around, I have just repented. What John is saying, I have come to warn you, snakes. You guys are being acting wrong. You're, you're just... You're just wrong. I am asking you to wake up and turn back to God and a new life. That's what repentance is. The easiest way to understand this is God wants a person to stop going the way they've been going and to turn the other way. And a sign that you want to, a sign that you believed in that, is John would have people go through the waters of baptism. 
that was the sign inwardly, I mean of an outward sign, of an inward change of heart. That's why we have baptism. It's to say, I have not been living for Christ. Now I want everybody to know that I'm his. I like what Leon Morris writes about baptism in this, this passage. It says, baptism was originally a rite of cleansing in the religion of that day. It seems certain that at this time the Jews used proselyte baptism, a ceremony to cleanse converts from the defilement they saw as characteristic to all Gentiles. So if I was a Gentile and I wanted to become a Jew, I had to be baptized because I was considered defiled. I'd have to go under the water so I could be clean and then receive God into my life. The sting in John's practice was that he applied this to the Jews. The same ceremony, Leon Morris writes, that they would use for the Gentiles. So John is saying, you too, Jews, also need to be clean. And if you don't believe me, look at what he says in verse um, 8. He's talking to those that came out, the Jewish people. He said, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Meaning, I'm, hey, I don't need this. I don't need to change. I'm already in God's family. I'm Jewish. John writes, uh, we have Abraham, for I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It doesn't matter whose family you're born into. It doesn't matter if you're raised in the church. It doesn't matter if you come to church. What matters is change of heart. Repentance is required to truly be a convert, to be different. It's a change of attitude, a change of perspective, a change of behavior. This is what John is saying. He's assuming there's going to be a new life, a new life change. Like where he says in verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In biblical understanding, fruit always is a sign of the tree. Like if you have an apple tree, you don't just glue on apples. It's already an apple tree before it produces apples. To have good fruit, you have to be first good inside. In your being, not in your action. Action follows being. That's the point. That's why he says, even in verse 4, repentance is such an important part. He goes, you want God in your life? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. What he's saying, if you've ever gone down a highway, if you've ever gone down a highway like in Pennsylvania or in the mountains, what they'll do a lot of times is they'll just cut straight through mountains so it's a straight road. So you can go on the highway easily. What he's saying, you want... Christ is coming after me. You want him to enter your life? Straighten it out. Change. Be different. And he'll come to you. It's as I was doing some study, this is one of the this is one of the commentators said this as after he was listening to what John was asking him to do. Because they asked in verse 10, what should we do? What are works of repentance? What is behavioral change that God wants? One writer said, true repentance, true repentance 
is always intensely practical. True repentance is always intensely practical. The reason why to me this is a tremendous statement is because the current church culture, we have a tendency to make true repentance a show, a grand show. See? Look, people came forward up the aisle after we played tearful music or people were raising their hands or people were nailing sins on a cross up here. See, I'm changed. Boom, 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 and I cry and I go back and I'm different. I'd have these, these big victory parties after football games and kids would come forward and they'd kneel and cry. <laughs> I'm different. We like that. show. It's a show. What John is saying, are you different? Are you different? Okay. It needs to start changing in the small things, the everyday things of your life. The first thing he says here is, look what he says. Verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. First thing he's saying is meet real people's needs. Look around. If you are different, and you have been going this way, you've been living a self-driven life, a life for your glory, and all of a sudden you now need to live for God, what's going to happen? You're going to start noticing things. You're going to start being broken for the lives of other people. You're going to want to meet people's needs. Second thing he's comes up is that some tax collectors came. and Tax collectors at that time... Roman authorities would collect taxes. It's tax season right now. And people, collectors would put in a bid to get the accounts in different regions. And so the Romans would give certain people that territory to collect taxes. Now, it was a very big deal to get that territory because you as the tax collector could determine the rate of tax. And a lot of tax collectors would up the tax amount, so they inherited a huge profit. Greedy. Look at what John says to the tax collectors. He didn't say you're wrong for being a tax collector, but he did say don't collect any more than you're required to. Don't make a profit off people. Don't use them. Be fair. So no false dealing or profiting off of others. Don't see other people as Somebody to use for your gain and advantage. And then the third thing, this is interesting. A soldier came up to him. A lot of churches believe pacifism is the only godly way. John didn't say stop being a soldier. But he did tell the soldier, don't extort money, which means don't, you know, if you want to come to the next city, you got to pay me a little bit. Especially if you go, if you go to third world countries, when we were in Russia, in order to a lot of times get the official, we had to pay him under the table, extorting money. Saying, don't do that. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. What he's telling the soldiers, just work hard. Don't use your position to hurt other people. Be a person of integrity. Be content. What repentance changes are the little things about you. The tiny things. The small things. Our country wants top-down answers. We want to end racism, inequality. 
We, we want everything to be mandated from top down. John is saying, no, Christianity should start from the roots of who you are. Be different. Be different. If you really are Christ, be different. How do you do these areas of your life? I think a truly repentant person will just obey what the Word says. Look at Romans 1.5. I love this verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is talking about his role as an apostle, how he preached the gospel. Then in verse 5 he says, talking about Jesus and his power, and he says, through him, through Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles. So he went out to preach the gospel for what purpose? to call all the world to the obedience that comes from faith. So faith, belief, doesn't end at faith. It ends at obedience. Why? For his namesake. Do you owe God obedience? You don't owe God anything. He doesn't need anything. You can never pay him back, actually. However, if you really are changed and you can't believe you're forgiven, don't you want the rest of the world to know? And the way you show the world is through your obedience. It wakes people up to God's goodness. Could you imagine giving your coat to somebody who doesn't have one? They're like, why? Nobody else has done that for me. Why did you do that? Somebody's in my life. So this large crowd came to see John. They were wowed by John. He was compelled. Telling people's lives were changing, but that's not the strangest thing of all. I think the strangest thing of all, the absolute, utterly strangest thing of all about this whole account of John is he didn't take one ounce of the credit. He took zero credit, nothing. He didn't own any of it. Why is this strange? Because we love to take the credit. We love, man... We have the new formula in Christianity. We got the secret. Come to our church. We got the best bands. We got the best preachers. We have the new doctrines. We are now the truest, true Christians. Our denomination is. John is just saying, it's not about me. Listen to what verse 15 says. The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Why would they wonder that? Because this guy could preach. This guy was compelling. They heard nothing like it. So they were wondering. John answered them. You know what? I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. Don't worry about me. But this guy, this, this guy that's following me, oh, man. I'd just throw some water on you, give you some soap and water. You feel a little better. This guy, he's going to light your soul on fire. One that is more powerful than I will come. And his, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What this was, was in that day, slaves had to serve their masters, but they weren't required to fasten the straps of sandals. They thought that was actually too low for a slave to do. John is saying, not only is it, it's not too low for me, not only that, it's too high of a job. This guy's that incredible. I don't even deserve to tie his shoes. He's amazing, this guy coming after me. 
He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. However, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It means don't mess with this guy. His words, don't take the words of the guy that's going to follow John lightly. And with many other words, John exhorted people and proclaimed the good news to him, the good news that the kingdom of God is here in the person following him. If a big crowd is formed because of a great teacher, they're drawn to a fascinating personality, or real life change happens through a new discipleship method, we are so quick to boast about how we have the new corner on the market. It's crazy. I've been actually contemplating writing a book, even though I, I just contemplate writing books. I never write them, just contemplate it. I contemplate writing a book called My Name is Chris, I Am a Christian, I Love Christ, But I Hate Competition. Everyone competes. Churches compete. It's so tiring. Why are we competing? It's only about a man. Man, those churches who are growing a better lighting, better music, fresher teaching, we need to congratulate them, emulate them, have conferences around them so we can capture their greatness. No, it's about Jesus, honestly. Yeah, we try to do better, but if Jesus is lost, something's wrong, even if our market share grows. So personal grandizement does not fly for Johnny is one message. That's his message. I'm not he, says that in the book of John. I'm not him. I'm not the guy. He, he so believes it. Like, look at verse 19. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias. So Herod, one of the rulers, was, was dating his brother's wife or sleeping with his brother's wife. See, rulers can do that kind of stuff. They can get away with it. He's doing all these other evil things. But John was rebuking him face to face, going after him. And because of this, Herod locked John up in prison. That's the way you can tell that He's being more loyal to his message than himself. So, in conclusion, what will grow our church based on this? What will bring success? Honestly, I think two things. We preach the word the best we can and let the Spirit of God have his way in the hearts of people. Secondly, do the small things. Do small things. And while you do small things, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I do care about the growth of our church. I do, because I believe in what we do here. I really do. But I know that if I was to be honest, I'm flawed, lacking polish. Not, we're not too good at self-promotion here. I know you are the same way. <laughs> we're, we're weak. But did you know God uses weak people? You know who he really uses? People who remember. I'm not he. That's who God blesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist, amazing guy. We thank you for a simple little message. Repent for forgiveness, change. 
And I do pray, God, that people in here, those who feel that they are condemned or that they are unworthy or that they deserve nothing, I'm glad they feel that way because it's true. It is true. We deserve nothing. However, in you there's forgiveness. I pray they would run to you, and I pray that they would wake up and change the direction they've been going. I pray we would do the small things. And ultimately, I pray that your word would not return void this morning. And in Christ's name we pray.